0: Well, you got to picture yourself in Rome. Uh, Jesus is now gone for 30 years or so, and you get together in a house slightly smaller than this. And you're huddled together, and you've come for some singing, like we just did, and you've come for some food, like we'll have before we go, and you come to encourage each other in the way of Jesus. And so we're huddled around, and it's late on a Sunday night. We're getting ready to go to work tomorrow, but someone is passing through Rome, and they've got a copy of the writings by John Mark. And John Mark has been traveling with none other than the Apostle Peter, and Peter's like one of the closest guys to Jesus, and he has written down, John Mark has written down what Jesus did, and said, you and I weren't there, but we're in the house, we're convinced that Jesus is who he says he is, but we don't know the details. And as we're going through, the Gospel of Mark that you and I have was meant to be read all the way through. You didn't chop it up in five verses at a time. So we were patient and we're sitting and we're listening and we've gone through the early part of who Jesus is and now we hit what is now known as chapters four and five. They didn't divvy it up. It was just one long thing. Chapters four and five and we've heard like a marathon of miracle stories. And so just a few moments ago, you and I heard that Jesus silences a hurricane. He says to the wind, be still, be still. And suddenly, it stops, and the people in the boat are rescued. And you're thinking, amazing. And then we, we just heard, two seconds ago, that Jesus gets to the shore and finds a man who is self-mutilating, who is so strong that people can't bind him down. But Jesus walks up and speaks to him for a few moments, casts out a demon, and he's seated. In his right mind, he's sane. And you and I are thinking to ourselves, Amazing. And now, a few sentences ago, we just heard that Jesus he sees a man who's the leader of a synagogue, a good guy, whose daughter's about to die. And Jesus says, I'll go with you, as if he's going to do something about it. She's on her deathbed. But Jesus makes a step, and then a woman touches him, and she's miraculously made whole. And you're saying amazing. And, and then he gets to the girl's house, and she's already dead. And Jesus says, No, 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 get up. And she does. And you're thinking, wow, what's about to happen next? You are expecting another in a marathon of stories of this great Jesus and his power. But look at what we get instead. Mark chapter 6, verse 1, and we'll read. After the marathon, Jesus says in verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 1, Jesus left there and went to his hometown accompanied by his disciples And when the Sabbath or the day of rest came, he began to teach in the synagogues and many who heard him were amazed. So, so far, it's, it's, it's all the same. Jesus has left the field and he's come home. But look at the next verse. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What's this wisdom that has been given to him? What are these remarkable miracles that he is performing. And then the twist, verse three, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at Jesus. Verse four, Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives and in his home." Verse 5 is the sad part. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them, which is so weird, right? He couldn't do many any miracles except people were sick and they were made whole. As if that's no big deal at this point because what you see Jesus doing is amazing. And then it ends in verse 6. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Now it says here in verse 1 that Jesus comes home to his hometown, which we know is Nazareth Um, and now I don't know if you've been there I haven't been there yet but when we think of Nazareth we're comparing it to this great city that we live in I mean people are flocking to the Pacific Northwest I mean they're flocking here for the great food this is known as a foodie town They're uh, they're flocking here for the great coffee baristas is a is a great profession how many baristas do we have past present or future here here we go Look at the number of baristas just in this room. And then people come here to retire by 25. We have more 25 year olds that are retired. Like, no, what are you doing? I'm adventuring. Anyway, people are flocking because Northwest is the best, right? Everyone wants to be here. But when you think Nazareth, you cannot think of Portland, Oregon. What you have to think of is Greenhorn, Oregon. Have you been there? Greenhorn, Oregon is known. At, you have been to Greenhorn? No way! Greenhorn is the smallest town in the state of Oregon. There are seven homes, and it has a population of zero. No lie, just ask Google. You Google, Google it right now. I don't even care. Uh, Greenhorn, Oregon, is has a population of zero, and that is Nazareth. Nazareth was not on the map. Nazareth is not mentioned in the Old Testament as a place of significance. Nazareth is nowhere in the Jewish writings. As a matter of fact, there's no church in Nazareth till 300 years after the time of Jesus. Nazareth is like Greenhorn. Greenhorn was established during the gold rush in eastern Oregon, and it's the highest elevation city, and when the gold was gone, everyone's gone, and that is Nazareth. It's no man's land. And so you got to think, Jesus comes back to Greenhorn, right? Seven houses. We think, it's uh, Nazareth on the side of a hill, that there, there's a, a couple of mud huts. Most of the people are related. 150 to 200 people max in Jesus' home. There are more than 150 people on my block and in your neighborhood. And that's where Jesus was born and raised. So when Jesus comes back, how many people are there? Everybody. If you come from a small town, you know, when someone goes good from a small town and they come home, everybody comes out. There's a parade with one vehicle and two animals. Like, you know, whatever you got. But everyone comes out because local boy made good is big news. And so Jesus comes back to this. Everyone there, and they start circulating. I mean, I think maybe Mary is there because the brothers are there. Sure. And so moms talk, Right? So mom's reminding everyone else in this little village, my boy's home, you know, proud mom's, like my mom's sitting there in the front row, literally. And, and you know, look at my, my, Jesus is back. And James and the others are like, oh, oh Jesus comes back, gotta come back, you know, star of the football team, you know. And the rest of them are sneering. Now, the Bible doesn't say it, but I'm making it up. And we know that people are mixed when it comes to Jesus. They are. And so they're in the hometown and reports of Jesus' miracle power. Now, you can't deny Jesus' wow factor because he's doing what no one else can do. So as they share in the reports, we see that the scene begins to shift. They say, wait, isn't guy? look uh, down in verse, middle of verse 2, where did this man get these things? What's this wisdom? Where are these mirac- miracles he's performing Verse three, isn't this the carpenter? Uh, the word carpenter is tecton. It could be a woodworker, stoneworker, or metal worker. Jesus is buff. Uh, Jesus, and we don't know exactly what he did. We all think wood. There wasn't a ton of wood in Nazareth. So he probably did a little woodwork, a little stonework, metal we don't know, but he worked with his hands. He's the guy who came. You know, you can't fix the window, and he comes and fixes it. You can't repair the toilet. There were not none there, but like, you know, he could, he's a handyman. He is blue collar to the core, and again, we, we want to shake up our sterilized view of Jesus He knows what a hard day's work is like, and he's not afraid to get his hands dirty. That's Jesus, which is a mystery and which throws people off. Why? Because the scribes in their day, they went to the elite schools. So Jesus is a rabbi, a teacher, but he's not like an ordinary rabbi. He's not like an ordinary teacher. And so where the others are holed up in a classroom, Jesus is working with his hands. And so they're they're not so sure Jesus is altogether someone worth following. Why? They grew up with him. They know him as the boy next door, and he's just like a carpenter's son. And so, can someone extraordinary come from this place, for one thing? And can someone extraordinary really come from such a normal, humble life? And so, their opinions about Jesus are thrown off. Now, we know Jews they didn't look down on hard work to this day. If you know Jewish people, they are some of the most hardest working people that that are known in any culture. So we don't think the townspeople looked down on Jesus because he was a hard worker. We know that they value that. But remember, who is Mark writing to? The gospel of Mark is written to people in Rome. Now in Rome, the Gentiles, the non-Jews, they looked down on manual labor. So if you're rich and important, you had slaves who did the the menial work. You didn't cook. You didn't clean. And so for Jesus to be viewed as this great leader, now again, we're in this house church. We're looking at this person, Jesus. If you're a Gentile, in your mind, someone who's important, worth following, a leader, a Caesar, needs to be born from royal or important family line. So you need to have a good last name. You need to have an important mom and dad. You need to have a senator or someone who's successful in business. If you're from that family, today, anyone could go from dirt, from nothing, to a billionaire. In Jesus's day, you didn't climb the social ladder unless you were born high up on the ladder. Again, we're trying to figure out tonight, how in the world could Jesus's own townspeople reject him? Well, we think that some who are listening, who are non-Jews, when they hear that Jew is a blue-collar, Jesus is a blue-collar worker, maybe they took offense at that. We don't know all that's going on, but we do know there is a slam against Jesus, and it's right in the middle of the text, verse three. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son? Again, no big deal to us, but you need to remember in the first century uh, to be male was to be more imp- important, and I'm, I'm making that in a nice way. To be male is to be a leader. To be female is to be, in some places, considered property. So at the time of Jesus and beyond, people didn't look uh, high at the role of women. And so if you talked about someone in their family, you said who they were in relation to their dad. And so Jesus should be known as the son of Joseph, but we know that it's the son of Mary. Now, we don't know if Joseph is still around. There's lots, if you read a lot of books about this passage, you get all sorts of opinions. But we do know this, that when Jesus was born, small town, right, everyone knows each other, that, uh, that Mary's wedding day and the time that she gives birth to Jesus were just a couple of months apart. So we do know, if they got married in June, they had a baby in September. Now, we know because we know the story that this was a movement of the Holy Spirit of God. Jesus was born, yes, of Mary, but not of Joseph. God gave birth to Jesus, so to speak, through Mary. He he uh, he helped her to conceive. But in the town, would you believe that <laughs> Mary and Joseph get married, and a couple of minutes, a couple of months later, they have a kid? It was God. <laughs> yeah. Right. Okay. So we do know that Jesus' upbringing, small village, 200 people, there's a scandal about their family. If you're from a smaller town, my wife and I lived in a small town for six months, uh, a smaller town of like 75,000. And wasn't it weird, hon? We'd go to the supermarket and we'd bump into people and we just moved in and like everyone knows your name. It's like freaky, you know? And you're like, wow, and, and gossip spreads like wildfire. It's faster than the internet. And, and, and in a smaller town, Word travels fast, so so there is a slam. Isn't this Mary's son? Implication: Yeah, he doesn't come from a high family. Actually, he comes from a family that we're we're a little suspicious about, and then a little bit about brothers and sisters. Uh, isn't the brother of uh, isn't Mary's son, and the brother of James and of Joseph and of Judas and of Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? If you're reading, they don't even they don't even give the sister's name. Uh, again, in their culture, the role of women was much uh, further less than men, and um, and we know that they took offense at him. Now, a little aside here, because some of us have been brought up in traditions um, that say, "Well, w- well uh, When I grew up going to church, not myself, but maybe you, you'd say, there was this whole thing about about. Mary always being a virgin. And how could it say that his brothers and sisters were there? Just, this is a little rabbit trail, but it may be helpful depending on your tradition. Nowhere in the text does it say or imply that these were his half-brothers. Some in the third and fourth century, 300, 400 years after the time of Jesus, there were these sayings, these creeds, about Jesus always being a virgin, not just during the time— I'm sorry, Mary being always being a virgin, not just during the time of Jesus, implying that these brothers and sisters were either probably from Joseph and a previous wife. Just to let you know, side rabbit trail, you don't get that from the text. As a matter of fact, the way it flows in Greek, you can't imply this in the text. It's a later tradition that later in some of the historic churches became a commonplace teaching— Side note, that's why we study the Bible so seriously every week. Because it's easy to grab onto things that somebody told me that and to pull that in as true. And so we want to carefully look at the scriptures. And I encourage you, everything that's said from the stage, carefully test it with what the Bible teaches. All of us have an opinion. We, we share what we think we know. I think about 80% of what I say is right. Maybe 80%. And 20% is maybe half true. Hopefully, I'm not telling a flat-out lie. But, you know, like, I don't have it all together. The problem is I don't know which 80% is right and 20% is wrong. Like, I'm growing. I'm learning. So all of us, not that we doubt what we hear, but we need to test it with what? The scriptures. And so, again, side note, I believe that uh, these other brothers and sisters of Jesus, they're they're like blood-related, full-on Brothers and sisters, again, rabbit trail, but I thought it to be interesting. So there you go. Um, so we know, we know that from the text. End of verse three. Aren't sisters with us? And they took offense at him. The word here is scandalon or scandal. They scandaled him. You could translate this that they took it as a stumbling block against Jesus, or they were repelled by Jesus. This is not a lighthearted word. Uh, What they're not saying is we're not so sure about Jesus. At this point, when they look at Mary, brothers, sisters, miracle power, they come to the conclusion in Nazareth, again, 150, 200 people, Jesus and all that he's for, there must be something wrong. So there comes to a point in your life, in their life, in my life, where you get the facts together, you come, you listen to some teachings, you listen to some podcasts, you interact with Christians, you do your research. But at a certain point, you make up your mind, right? And right now, maybe it's a little fluid. You probably have an opinion, strong, maybe flexible, about who Jesus is. What we get from Mark is rapid-fire He did miracles. The crowd was amazed. He did miracles. The crowd was amazed. He did bigger miracles. The crowd was amazed. And now he comes home. They talk about his miracles. They're amazed at first. And then they become convinced that Jesus is worth repelling. He's a stumbling block to their faith. They're not going to follow him at all. And I hope that none of you would make that claim. We do know that the brothers of Jesus, I'll throw it up on the screen for you to look at, John chapter 7, verse 5 says, even his own brothers did not believe in him. So let's not like look down on Nazareth too fast, right? Let's be generous. The very people that grew up closest to Jesus while he was alive did not receive him. It wasn't until after the resurrection, it wasn't until after the crucifixion, it wasn't so after the appearing, where James, the very own brother of Jesus, who saw him alive, then became convinced. What does that say to us? For some faith comes easy, like in the previous towns. They saw Jesus, they heard of his wonders, they heard his teaching. Amen. I'm gonna follow. You think of the, of James, um, sorry, of Peter and Andrew and James and John earlier in Mark. Jesus comes by their boat and says, Follow me. They're like, Yep, I'm ready. And that's, for some of you, that's your story. You heard it as a kid. You fell in love with this Jesus that your parents told you about. Fantastic. That's some in the gospel story. But others we see, like in Nazareth, doubt creeps in. Unbelief creeps in. Amazement eh, turns to a little cynicism. And the journey to faith is slow or leads to a dead end. And so I meet many people who grew up in a Christian environment, get to college, leave Get a girlfriend, get a job, and end up wandering, and they're far from their faith. And, and we shouldn't be surprised by those things, because Mark, through this story, I think, throws in right in the heart of the gospel some honesty. That people, everyone has an opinion about Jesus, and some grow from close to far, and some go from far close, and tonight we should be asking ourselves, as we apply this ancient story, is in which direction are we moving? That's really the the point of us sitting here huddled and listening, is are we moving in the direction of people who are far and want to know more, we're learning more, we're growing, and we draw closer to Jesus, or are we going like the town of Nazareth? They've been inundated with him from childhood and now, at the peak of Jesus' career, so to speak, when everyone's starting to follow him and he's getting more and more famous, they, in turn, instead of turning closer, they turn against him and they repel him and they consider him scandalous. And I can't answer that for you and I can't see that in you, but I do know that you are, you're moving in either direction. Right now, Sunday night, you're either moving closer to a deeper understanding of who Jesus is and following him in obedience, or you're, you're being repelled. You're becoming less convinced. You're, more questions are causing you towards doubt. And, and this is a sad encounter. It doesn't, it doesn't end with a beautiful punchline. There's no happily ever after. As a matter of fact, it ends with Jesus limited in his ability to do what he wanted to do in their life. So, a couple of things I want us to think when we look at this text, because it seems like a short story that doesn't apply to us, but it actually does. Uh, a few thoughts that I want us to think through. First, we need to figure out what unbelief is all about. Look at that next verse there, verse four. Jesus said to them, "A prophet is not is not without honor except in his own town." So, Jesus is picking up, this isn't a Bible quote, but it's uh, a saying of the day. Important people can become famous except in their own hometown. Why? Why? For most people. Because in your own hometown, people know more about you, right? So it's easy for uh, any one of us to become famous worldwide, but the people on your block who know you the best usually are able to pick apart reasons why you shouldn't be famous. So Jesus is aware that he's got the odds stacked against him because... He's ordinary. And here's the weird scandal in this. Part of the reason they rejected Jesus is because he's ordinary. Blue collar, regular worker, with a family and a mom who's got a scandalous supposed past, and brothers and sisters. And they, they were so limited in their understanding of how God works, they didn't believe that God could take someone from such an ordinary circumstance and save the world. And really, when you and I think about it, that's the scandal of the gospel in general. That Jesus, who you've never seen, born in a town you've never been to, doing works that you don't have firsthand, only second and third-hand accounts, that that Jesus can transform you on the inside, turn you from a rebel, a rebel against God to a son or a daughter of God, can change the way you think, the way you feel, and how you live, that Jesus can do all that? That seems too ordinary. We want to see with our own eyes. We want to experience it firsthand. We want to have all this evidence and the plainness of the gospel. Think about John 3.16. For God loved the world so much that he sends his one son who's born in a humble place and lives an ordinary life so that those of us who are far from him, God loves the world so much, so those who would believe in him wouldn't perish, wouldn't die apart from God, but have life that lasts forever. That's the core of our faith? That God can rescue me without me fixing myself? That it's trust in what Jesus did for me that can make me right with God that seems too ordinary? You mean I gotta go to, ch- no, I gotta go to church, I, I gotta do better, I gotta try harder. No, I, I have to do the scandal of the gospel is that God does the work through his son, Jesus, and I'm the beneficiary. It's, it's not by what I achieve. It's by what, by, God, what, by what God has done in Jesus for me, and that's scandalous. And so they look at Jesus, verse 4, and said to him, a Jesus as a prophet is without honor in his own town, among his relatives, and in his own home. So Jesus knew he'd be rejected. And then it says in verse 5, he could not do any miracles there except lay hands on a few sick people and heal them. Um, What does that say about us? Uh, What does it mean to believe and not believe? He couldn't do much in his own, own hometown because they didn't trust him. Unbelief is this. Let's throw it up on the screen. Unbelief is our unwillingness to commit, to the others, words, or action. What is it that kept people from receiving Jesus? It says he couldn't do any miracles there, only heal a few, only take care of a few that are sick. It's because of their unbelief. Unbelief isn't, isn't that, oh, I have a few questions, I'm not sure. All of us have seasons in life, and maybe you're in a season like that right now, where you wonder, you're not so sure, But what what those in Nazareth experienced was not just, I have got a question or two, their doubt moved to unbelief. They were unwilling to commit their lives to the leadership of Jesus. And we see that our unbelief can stop what Jesus longs to do. Did Jesus care about everyone sick and troubled in Nazareth? Yes or no? Yes. Yes. But Mark gives us an honest assessment. Somehow in the mystery of how God works, and don't even ask me the the finite details, I don't know. But I do know that there is a link between my response to who Jesus is and his response to me. And so in all of these other towns, he is free reign on setting people free. Think of a lady, one encounter prior. She just runs up and touches him. Believing if she just touches Jesus' clothes that whatever Jesus has will be transferred towards her. She's made whole. But here in his own hometown, Jesus is seemingly limited. Four things I want us to see tonight from this text that may be helpful as we wrestle with our own questions, with our own doubts at times, and with our own wonder as to, God, why is there such a little bit of your activity in my world. Number one, if you're taking notes, is Jesus can be divisive. Jesus can be divisive. In, in his own hometown, there are those who are with him, and there are those who are against him. Sometimes you think everywhere Jesus goes, things are gonna be alright. In his own hometown, he experiences rejection. Now, now, Mary, we think, I'm not sure, text doesn't say, but she's there at the cross when Jesus is is being killed. And so is it that Mary holds on and maybe a few other people where most, we don't know the details, but we do know that where Jesus is, there are people who end up for him and against him. You read back on chapters four and five, everywhere that Jesus goes, there are two responses. The leaders, for the most part, the religious leaders, want to kill Jesus. And the people who are most, from most humble circumstances, in the most desperate situation, they are pro-Jesus. So wherever Jesus is, there is often division. You see it in houses. Some of you, you've come to faith in Jesus, and it's wrecked your relationship with your siblings, with your mom and dad, with an aunt or uncle. When we choose to follow Jesus, this is a good reminder, it does leave a stake in the ground. Sometimes, because of my stand for Jesus, it could divide. Jesus said he didn't come to make everything all right. Sometimes it's going to make father against son, brother against sister, and following the ways of G- the following the way of Jesus may lead to some family turmoil. We see it in Jesus's own village, and so when it happens in our world, we shouldn't be surprised. I grew up, some of our relatives, some of our cousins, when we were growing up, they were were in love with Jesus, deeply enamored with Jesus, wanted to tell everyone about Jesus, and now they seem to grow cold. What do you do about that? We need to be encouraged on the one hand. Jesus understands. So if you're going through that rough spot right now, you are not alone. Jesus knows what it's like when his own brothers and sisters and neighbors and friends reject him. So Jesus can be divisive. Second thing I want us to pick up is there is a difference between uncertainty and unbelief. There's a difference between having a question or two and then moving towards unbelief like we see in Nazareth. Wherever Jesus went, they didn't have him totally figured out. People were wondering. That's why at the end of Jesus's life, there's no one with him bar his mom and a few followers at the cross. Mark's going to take us all the way to the last two weeks of Jesus' life, and we're going to see everyone rejects him, so everyone deals with uncertainty, but there is a difference between uncertainty and unbelief. Uh, Jim, myself, John, a few others, we're at a conference this week with about 150 uh, leaders in evangelism or outreach here in Portland that Luis Palau helped put on. And it was so cool to hear different stories. And this one guy, York Moore, uh, he is a leader in a group called Inner Varsity. This group helps share the gospel with people on, on college and university campuses. Well, York was telling us a bit of his story. York grew up in a home with mom and dad who were atheists. And so he said, so much so that there was a sign on their front door, like a welcome sign. And it was, more residents under it, atheists. Talk about a welcoming environment. How would you like to come home to someone's house? You know, your York's friend and, the you know, more residents, atheists, okay. So they put it on their front door. And he grew up in an environment that ripped apart Jesus, ripped apart Christianity. He didn't know any better. So by the time he gets to university, he was completely skeptical. As a matter of fact, he was convinced he was studying philosophy so he could come up with better arguments against religion, against God talk, and against Jesus, and that was his background. He grew up with unbelief. Beyond a few questions, it was unbelief. There's no room for Jesus, and then he said he was in university, and he began to struggle with depression, he was on the verge of suicide, and York, by himself, encountered Jesus. He said, nobody preached to me, but I was alone in despair, and Jesus came and encountered me in ways that I can't describe And he moved from unbelief towards following Jesus. And at one point in his life, he still wrestled with questions. He's an intellectual. He's got parents who have all sorts of arguments against Jesus. But when he encountered Jesus for himself, he moved from unbelief to faith. And he said it took a while for him to figure out. He had to reread the Bible. Now with the lens of who Jesus really is. And now... Fast forward it 20 years since the time he was in university. He's in college campuses all over the country sharing his story of how Jesus encountered him. And here's my point in that. You could be like a York Moore who has absolutely no Jesus background. And when Jesus comes and becomes convincing to you, I hope you would respond like York. York. You see, sometimes we're looking for every question to be answered. When York first encountered Jesus and then began to talk to Christians to find out what was going on, he didn't have all of his questions answered. He knew enough about Jesus to follow him. And I think that message needs to be restated again. If you move from high school in a home where everyone loves Jesus, and you go off to a mainstream university campus, remember this, you already know it, but be prepared. There are more people who want to pull down the name of Jesus than lift him up. But somewhere in your soul, you need to protect yourself, not from questioning things. It is okay to ask questions, isn't it? It's okay to say, does the Bible really say that? It's okay to look for evidence because our faith is not made up. It's based on historical reality. You can find answers to the questions that you're looking for. But if you're looking to have every question answered, before you follow Jesus, trust me, my friend, you will never follow Jesus. You will never follow Jesus. Because in his own hometown, they knew where he was from. They knew what he was about. Jesus never sinned. They couldn't accuse Jesus of being a bad kid. He never stole anything. He never did anything wrong. He's the son of God. But even with that, they still went from uncertainty towards unbelief. And I pray that wouldn't happen for you. So not only do we need to keep away from unbelief, number three, familiarity can be dangerous. Think about this. If there's any crew that should follow Jesus, it's those in Nazareth. But those who've been exposed to the most bits about Jesus sometimes push them away. Let's just just be honest. If you've grown up and you had a little bit of Jesus for breakfast, lunch, and dinner since you were five years old, you know, prayed at every meal, and went to maybe Christian schools, and and heard Jesus talk, you can grow numb to the name Jesus and lose awe, wonder, and amazement. I think this encounter in, in Mark 6 is so relevant for Portland today. Because we live in in an area where there's two things happening. Some have no bit of Jesus, no background. But let's remember, when Jesus comes to town, so to speak, he can convince York more in one moment that he's alive. So you can get the most secularized or atheistic human being. You could be sitting here tonight and say, that's me. Jesus is real enough to make himself real to you and convince you in a moment. God does that. He's amazing. But for most of us, we've been exposed to Jesus for too long. It's like taking some medicine for too long. If you take any medication too long, what happens? Your body gets used to it, right? It's like working out. You do the same workout routine within a few weeks. It no longer has the same effect. Your body has a way to adjusting. And what you did, you know, curling 10 pounds no longer does anything. You need to change it up in order to make a difference. And some of us, we've been exposed to Jesus so long that we see him as ordinary. That's Mary's son. What are you doing tonight? Eh, I'm going to church. Why? You know, that's, that's what we do. We forget that right here in this room, the Holy Spirit of God is right here. Like think about it. this is amazing. He is at work in every human being in this room. You know, he's not working me. If you're not following him, he's knocking on the door of your heart. If you are following him, he actually resides, don't ask me how, in you. God walks with you. Jesus knows your thoughts. Hello. You know, this is, like, and Jesus can do anything. Like, right now, absolutely anything in your life, in your world, Jesus can handle it. He could do something about it. As a matter of fact, you're saying, well, I don't know if Jesus can change that. He can do it right now. This is. People are like, yeah, but I just want ice cream afterwards. Like, you know, like we 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 become numb. And my friend, let's let this encounter in Nazareth remind us that you know familiarity breeds what contempt. I think about my wife. We we met when we were both young. We've been married for twenty years. We've known each other for twenty five years. When I first met Carmen you know, the moment I put down the phone, this was pre, like, FaceTime, pre, like, video. I actually, like, talked to her and didn't see her at the same time. And and when, I'm not kidding, I remember putting down the phone. Dad, you're going to love this. Our rotary phone. Like, you know, some of you are old enough to know. Like, uh, and uh, I put it down. Like, I miss her. I want to, you know, some of you have had the joy of being in love, right? And you're like, Oh, and up in the room, and there she is. oh. And what happens over time, if we're not careful, anyone in a relationship, you get it. If we're not careful, Carmen is the same amazing woman that I met 25 years ago. But what has changed or can change, if I'm not careful, is I can become accustomed and lose the sense of wonder of what it means to be in love. And if we're not careful in your relationship, you're married five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, and couples don't move apart in a day. It happens incrementally in small pieces as we lose that sense of awe and wonder, right? Now, if that happens in human relationship, we get that. Is that happening in your life when it comes to Jesus? Have you been hanging out with him for so long? This is like your buddy that sits on the couch next to you as you watch a movie and eat chips. Or do we forget that he's the creator of the universe and madly in love with us, that he's the son of God, high and exalted, that he's coming back to judge the living and the dead, that he's going to make all things new. Everything in this universe is going to be remade by Jesus. Has this become such a commonplace message that we've lost our sense of awe and wonder? You're saying, well, so what about that? Here's why it's so important. When we lose that sense of who Jesus is, it affects the way I live today. If I get so accustomed to living with my wife, then I I don't bring flowers. I don't tell her I love her. It can happen to me. It happens in seasons. I think we're in a good season right now, but I'm not going to put you on the spot. But when in doubt, I'll look this way and give me a thumbs up, otherwise I'm in trouble. Oh, Jesus. Um, You get what I'm talking about. Are we moving, again, in the, in the story, people are moving closer to a relationship with Jesus. People are moving further from uncertainty to unbelief. One more, and then we'll go. Uh, and this is the one that really gets me. Jesus is amazed at our response to him. This is so good. Jesus is amazed. And now you're saying, well, where did you get that? I read the Bible. Uh, look at it. Verse Verse six. He, Jesus, was amazed at their what? Lack of faith. I put a a slide up before about unbelief. Uh, It's lack of faith. That phrase is one word, which you could translate unbelief. Jesus was amazed at their unbelief. He did all this stuff. He taught with wonder. He knew the scriptures because he's the God who supremely ruled over them. And they had no room for him. I think I need to remember, and maybe it'll be helpful if we all remember, right now, Jesus is amazed at your response to him. It blows him away. Now, the question then remains is, in in which way is Jesus blown away? Is he blown away like, wow, this boy knows so little of me, and yet he really trusts me. This this girl has only been walking with me for a few months, but she's exuding great trust. She's actually giving her life to me. She's saying, I don't want to be dating someone who doesn't follow you. I want to give my life in purity to you. She's only been walking for two or three months, and look at how she has given her life over to me. Is Jesus amazed with that kind of detail? Or is he amazed, like here in Nazareth, like, man, after 15 years, you still can't trust me? After all the, think about it. I ate yesterday. Three times. No, four times. It was hood to coast. I was hungry. And, and when you run, you just want to eat. You're burning them up. I ate four times yesterday. And yet, sometimes I doubt whether Jesus will provide for tomorrow. <laughs> Which is crazy. Is Jesus amazed at my faith? my humble trust in him, or my unbelief. Tonight, we get the invitation to respond. We get the invitation to say yes. And this is not a downer. This is not meant to be a slam. If you've struggled in this area, you've had questions, you've had doubts, you say, well, what do I do? I still have doubts, Jose. I don't know what to do. Here's what I would encourage you to do. Bring them directly to the source. Bring your uncertainty and doubt to Jesus. Don't hide them from us. Express them to people that you know and love and trust. Bring it out in the open, but don't come and play games as if you believe and walk out hurting because you're saying, I really don't. Find someone who knows and loves Jesus. Express that, and hopefully as God gives you a more greater understanding of who he is, you will respond in faith. Jesus couldn't do much in Nazareth because I didn't believe. And so that leaves me with this reality. In my world, I can keep Jesus from doing all that he wants to do if I refuse to trust him. And as a follower of Jesus, you need to know this, he's not mad at us when we have moments of doubt. But he can't do all he wants to do if you refuse to trust him just like a child. That's how I think Jesus said. Great are the kids in the kingdom because the kingdom is just like these. So my kids wake up in the morning, they're not stressed about the bank account. They're not. They're like, dad, make pancakes. Because they trust that their dad who loves them and cares for them is gonna give them what they need. And in the same way, you and I, can come to the living Jesus and say, Dad, breakfast, I need you. And if you'll lay your trust at Jesus, you will be amazed. Tonight we want to respond in worship, not just in singing songs, but we want to respond not like our friends in Nazareth. And so you get another opportunity. I pray that you wake up tomorrow, that you're alive tomorrow, and you get another opportunity tomorrow. But maybe you don't. I don't know. But tonight, as long as you're breathing, maybe we could respond with a sense of awe and wonder and say, Jesus, if I'm struggling with my unbelief, help me in my unbelief. Jesus, I trust you again. As we move into worship, because we've reconfigured the room, just some helpful thoughts. Uh, John's going to lead us in a a couple of songs. We're not going to open up the table uh, yet. We want to stand. And we don't even do that. Why don't you stand with me? And we're going to worship by singing in a moment. We want to give some room to chill. Don't feel like you got to go off somewhere. Where does this hit you tonight? Where are you struggling tonight? Eventually, when we open up the tables, if you're new here, we've got tables around the room where we have the bread and the cup and In a few moments, we'll get you to pick that up and we'll take together. But I also want to let you know that you're not alone. Uh, We have friends that are leaders in this church that want to serve you, pray for you, answer any questions that you might have. And we got a place to do that. You don't have to leave here. You could be prayed for tonight. And right over here on my right, on your left, there's a set of curtains. And when we open up the table, not yet. Uh, They're they're going to pull the curtains back a little bit. And we got some couches in a room next door and... If you're struggling with anything, big or small, uh, if you say, Jose, I just need someone to pray for me. I'm, I'm sick in my body, or I just got some bad news. I don't know what to do. I want someone to stand with me and pray with me. I, I feel like I, I don't believe enough. I want someone to trust Jesus with me. We'd love to do that. So uh, avail yourself. If you're not yet a, a follower of Jesus, here's the good news. Jesus came for you. He died, and he rose again, and he knows you by name, and he's calling you to follow him. And so in a moment when John opens up the tables, I'm going to invite you to take a step of faith. If you want to put your trust in Jesus, I'm going to ask that you go in through that little curtain and go into the prayer room and just, just tell the person to stand there, hey, Jose was talking about me and I want to follow this Jesus. And they would love to pray for you. Make sense? Let's pray.